Our sermon text for today is Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with ten thousands, to meet him, who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You can uh, sit down now. Father, we have gathered this morning because we are your children, because you have called us out of darkness and have called us to yourself to live in your light. We are people who are formed by the good news that though we were sinners, Christ has forgiven us, and we are now children of the King. So may um, May all that we hear this morning may be flavored by that, by that truth. Pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to um, ask a question and actually ask for some audience response. Um, you know, as good Baptists, we don't ever say anything in the service. But I'm actually going to ask you to respond to this. So can anyone guess how much a 30-second Super Bowl commercial costs to air? A bunch. That's very true. Brenda wins. Anyone guess? 50 million. Come on, man. That's No, it's not that high. How much? 10 million? Not quite. A little bit lower. Oh, a million? More than a million. Three. So it's five and a half million as of 2021. It changes every year, but it's typically right around $5 million. So keep in mind, that's just what it costs to air it. That's not including production costs, paying for actors, all that other stuff. For 30 seconds. So when you're making that commercial, and you're putting five and a half million plus production costs into it, what do you say in that commercial? Um, you're going to do whatever you think will encourage, inspire, compel people to use your product. So, you know, you'll if you're selling a car, you'll have a car zooming around somewhere out west where it's beautiful, and try to trick people into thinking if they buy this Nissan, they're going to be like this carefree life or whatever it's going to be. You know, if you buy this product, it'll build community and you'll have friends just like this commercial. They're trying to use this to get you to buy their product. That's the goal. But I tell you what, no Super Bowl commercial, no commercial in general ever does. They never emphasize the costs of their product, right? So no car commercial 
ever tries to let you know what it'll feel like to make heavy car payments for six years. Imagine that every month you're going to pay this for six. No, no one's going to. No car company's going to emphasize that. Doritos, they make a lot of interesting commercials. They've had some funny Super Bowl ones. None of them are going to, no, no, no Doritos commercial is going to emphasize that if you eat this entire party-sized bag, you're going to have to run 15 miles to burn that off. Like, they don't emphasize the cost because that's going to deter you from buying their product. But what's interesting is we're back in the Gospel of Luke. We took a three-month hiatus and went through First and Second Chronicles. We're back in Luke. We're beginning a new section on discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And Jesus begins with the costs. It's very different than a commercial. And the reason is that Jesus is not a salesman. He's not selling another brand of religion. He's not trying to put forward a new brand or, or, or whatever. But rather, he's announcing good news. He's announcing good news that the kingdom of God has come, that God has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that we can have a relationship with God. And he's inviting us to become citizens of a new kingdom. And to, be, and to be part of this kingdom means we have to renounce all of their loyalties, all of their allegiances. Because at the end of the day, the essence of discipleship, the essence of what it means to follow Jesus is loving Jesus more than anything else in the world. And that's what we're going to get from our text this morning. So to give you an outline, first it's going to be this love above all loves, and that'll be verses 25 to 26. When I say this love, I mean our love for Christ. It just, it's cleaner to say this love rather than say our love for Christ. That's what I'm referring to. This love above all loves. Two, this love no matter the cost, which is verses 27 to 33. And then this love is our distinctive, which is verses 34 to 35. So to give a quick recap as I flip to our text. So again, it's been three months since we've been in, in Luke, so I'm just going to quickly go over where we are in Luke. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, verses 51, there's a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. This is seen as kind of what divides Luke in half. Uh, and in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him, from to Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from this point on, from chapter 9, verse 51, until Jesus enters Jerusalem, that, that's where he's moving. It's not that he makes a, a beeline, like he put into his Google Maps, fastest way to Jerusalem, but his cross, his death on the cross, is, is the kind of backdrop to everything that happens until Jesus actually dies on the cross. Uh, from chapters 10 to 14, one of the major themes is Jesus addressing the spiritual leaders. He's calling them to follow him, to be part of his kingdom, and, and at the end of the day, by and large, the leaders reject Jesus. And so the last parable, if you remember this, again, from three months ago, the last parable that finishes that section is Jesus telling this parable about um, a king throwing a great feast, and he invites people, and those who, uh, um, and those who are invited don't come. And so then Jesus says, okay, we'll go out into the highways and the byways and compel whoever will to come in. If my initial guests aren't going to come, well, I'm going to get anyone else who, can, who wants to come can come. And so Jesus is saying he's, he extended the invitation to the religious, religious leaders. They rejected it. And so now Jesus is going out to the masses. And this is where we get from verse, chapters 15 to chapters 19, a look at just discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus as Jesus begins to address the masses and the crowds that follow him? So that's kind of the context where we are in, in the book of Luke. I also, I want to set some more context before we jump into this text because it would be dangerous to forget that chapters 1 to 14 has come before we get to where we are. If, 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 if our introduction to Jesus is just 
Luke 14, verses 25 to 35, we're gonna have a distorted view of who Jesus is, of the nature of his ministry, of what he's calling us to be and do. And so I want want to kind of set us in in the broader context of Jesus' ministry, and that Jesus announces his ministry in Luke 4, and he announces it by calling it good news. This is really important. This is the broader context. This is good news. Specifically, he quotes from Isaiah. He says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What sums up Jesus' life and ministry is good news. It's good news for the poor, for the blind, for the oppressed. It's that God, again, has come near in Jesus Christ. His kingdom is now breaking into this world, this world that is, that is, that is controlled by the evil one, that's marred by sin. God himself, the creator and redeemer, is here. Good news. That's the context. By the way, that's why people are following Jesus when we get to this text. What sums up Jesus' ministry is not hardship. What sums up the life of Jesus is good news. We've got to keep that in mind or we're going to misunderstand what's going on here. There's also a theological context in that what we're looking at today is not instructions for how we enter the kingdom. We enter the, the invitation to the banquet, which is another metaphor for the kingdom for life with God. The, the invitation to the feast with God is, is to anyone who would accept it. And it's accepted through faith, by grace. But then, once we have become citizens of the kingdom of God, once we have been adopted as God's children, how do we live into that identity? How do we live as faithful citizens of a new kingdom? Well, that's what this is laying out. So it's important to keep that all all in mind as we begin this. And one last note, by the way, what we're going to look at this morning is it's Jesus is setting an ideal that we are always striving for. Always something that we're hoping to get closer to, we're hoping to grow in, and it's a process for all of us. It can be really encouraging to remember that Peter, the apostle, heard this from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus say, unless you renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple, and yet Jesus denied his Lord. He did not take it to heart to renounce everything. He was not willing to renounce everything, and yet Peter went on to become one of the pillars of the church. It's a process for all of us. To, to, to walk into what does it mean to be faithful citizens, to live out our identity of beloved children of God. It's a process for all of us. But this is the ideal that we're aiming for. All right, so that's all my kind of prelude to kind of set the, set the scene, set the context. And here, let's go ahead and look at verses 25 to 26 together. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, the first thing we think when we read this is we probably wince when you hear that hate. Like, Jesus, you, I'm really supposed to hate my parents, or hate my wife and my children, or hate my siblings? How do we make sense of this? Now, there's a very helpful principle for how we interpret the Bible, which is the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. And so when we get to a text where we're, I'm not really sure what this means, we look to what scripture says elsewhere about something, and that gives us an idea of where to go. And so for instance, in Luke chapter 10, just a couple of chapters before this, Jesus affirms that the second greatest commandment in the Bible is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And your family, if you're married, your wife, your kids, or if you're a student, your parents, or your siblings, they are your closest neighbors. They are as close as you can get and not be you. And so, of course, if Jesus is saying, we've got to actually hate your parents, you've got to actually hate your children or hate your whatever, well, then he'd be contradicting himself where he said, no, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Further, 1 Timothy 5.8 says that a person who does not provide for their family has denied the faith. If you're unwilling to provide for your own family, if you don't love your own family, how can you pretend to be a follower of Jesus? So clearly, whatever Jesus means in this text, he's not saying you should literally hate your parents or hate your wife or hate your kids or siblings or whatever. So what is Jesus getting at? Well, again, scripture interpreting scripture. There are places, other places in the gospels where this story is mentioned. For instance, in Matthew 10, 37, it says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, that makes a lot more sense of what Jesus is getting at. He's not saying you gotta hate your family, but he's saying you can't love anyone more than me, even your mother or your father or your wife or your children or your siblings. What best reflects our citizenship in the kingdom of God, what best reflects our identities as the beloved of God, as the children of God, is that we love Christ more than anyone else. It's interesting that um, Jesus chooses family because in choosing family, he's homing in on what is most precious to us. I love coffee. Many of you love coffee. If God spoke to me in a dream and said, Mike, you've got to give up coffee, it would be hard. It would be a form of suffering, but I, I would like to believe that I would obey. I would give up coffee. If God called me to a ministry somewhere that did not allow me to drink coffee, I would like to think that I would obey that. I would be willing to give up coffee for the sake of the kingdom. But family, there are many good things in my life. If I had to pick between my family and anything else, I would pick my family every time. Vocation, family, family. My house, family, family. (laughs) Financial stability, family, family. I'm sure you guys are the same way. Pick your family over your career, over your possessions, or and what's more important than family? And this is the wisdom of Jesus, is that he doesn't pick some culturally contextual, you know, thing that we'd have to kind of work our way into the first century mind to understand. He picks something that is universally the most precious thing to anyone, your family, your kin. He says, even this, you cannot love more than me if you want to be a faithful citizen of my kingdom, if you want to reflect the, the identity that, that we've been given as children of God. I, I, this is an analogy that was inspired by commentary, so don't be impressed with my insight here, but um, many of you probably have either watched video footage or seen pictures of just the, the, the tragedy of the, the international airport at Kabul and watching Afghanis desperately trying to flee the country, and it's, it's heartrending to watch. Now, if some of them are allowed to enter the United States as refugees, gain asylum, and they're able to get on the track towards citizenship, I do not know the process. It's very convoluted and complex, but I do know that one of the last things that they will have to do before they can become a citizen in the United States of America is to pledge allegiance to the Constitution of America, and to the democratic ideals of America. You have to come to a point where you say, I renounce my former citizenship, 
and I pledge allegiance, my ultimate political allegiance is now to the United States of America. Now, what that does not mean, though, is that you have to hate your former country, or that you can't visit your former country, or that you can't think fondly. It's not like they can't enjoy Afghani food or go visit you know, relatives in Afghanistan or, 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 or appreciate their Afghani culture, but it means your, your highest allegiance can no longer be to Afghanistan and now has to be to the United States of America. It's very similar to what Jesus is saying because, again, the decision to become a Christian isn't a decision to walk an aisle. It's the decision to become a citizen of a new kingdom. And so that involves renouncing our former allegiances, our former loyalties, and now Christ the King is our first and foremost allegiance. And again, we don't enter this kingdom by renouncing everything. We don't enter it by our obedience or whatever. This is a banquet offered to everybody that we accept by faith. But when we consider what we've received in Christ, when we consider the He's made us children of God, that he's welcomed back the prodigal son, no matter our sin, and he's welcomed us back with open arms in the, in the abundance of his grace and his love. I mean, honestly, what, what other response is adequate to that other than Jesus, you're, take everything I have. What else can we offer in return other than our full love and commitment? This love above all loves, and the first principles of discipleship. Second point, this love no matter the cost. Another potential stumbling block for those who are interested in following Jesus or for those who are already members of the kingdom who have become Christians, another stumbling block is the suffering that's going to come with being a citizen in the kingdom of God. Let's look at verses 27 to 33. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down Count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, this is where it's important. What sums up the life and the ministry of Jesus is not suffering. It's good news. It's good news of God coming near to those of us who desperately needed salvation and hope. But yet, because we live in a world that's marred by sin, a world where we have a very real enemy who's named Satan, because of the remaining sin within our own hearts, there will be suffering. It's a guarantee. There will be suffering just being in this world, but here's the thing is, the decision to follow Jesus and be a citizen of his kingdom will bring a particular form of suffering, a unique form of suffering. You've probably heard this analogy before, but you know, a fish that floats with a current doesn't have to work very hard, but when you swim against the current, it takes work. Well, to be a citizen of the kingdom means you're going to be swimming against the current at times. And that means that you may grow tired or discouraged. You may bump into logs on the way. There will be pain that comes from following Jesus. Now, here's the thing. It's going to be tempting when you're swimming against that current and you see other fish floating by, and you're like, well, they seem so happy. And they're not 
tired and discouraged like I am right now, and they're not bumping into things. Like, why am I doing this? This is where we come back to, we suffer for the Lord because we love him. This is where the good news has to color how we understand this passage because we will not be willing to give up whatever Christ calls us to give up unless we really receive his message as good news. If it's something that we're bored with, that we've heard so many times that doesn't really move us, well then we're, we're not gonna give up. We're not gonna renounce ourselves. We're not gonna swim against the current, but when we remind ourselves, this comes in, in, in the context of good news, of Christ who came and proclaimed good news to the poor, freedom and liberty and, and healing to the sick. Well, and we, we're willing to suffer because we love Jesus. Christ, you call me to something that requires suffering. Even if it's discouraging, even if it's hard, I'm gonna do it because I love you. Because you have loved me first. It's interesting. Um, in, this, in this passage, so Jesus says, you know, whoever doesn't take up their cross, that's another way of saying whoever's not willing to suffer, cross is a form of suffering. And then he uses two illustrations to kind of bring this out. And both illustrations bring out the same point. It's a call to consider, to sit down and consider what it means to think through clearly our decision to follow Jesus before we make that plunge. So the first illustration is, you know, if you're going to build a house, make sure you have enough money to build it. I wish Joanna was here. I'm sure she'd be able to confirm that's true, right? Like if you only have enough money or materials to build half a house, well, then you're going to waste a lot of money and not have a house. So what's the call? Well, first sit down and count the cost. See if you have, if you have enough. Sit down and consider it. Or if you're a king going out to war, um, make sure that you have enough guys to beat the other guy. But in both of the illustrations, the command is to sit down and think this through. The call to follow Jesus is not like this impulsive, passionate, in-the-moment-spur decision. The call to follow Jesus requires sober reflection. It's good news, but am I really in this? Am I really willing to follow this Jesus wherever he may lead me, whatever suffering may come? And here's the thing, Jesus, he doesn't say this because he doesn't want disciples. That's not the, he wants disciples. He, God wants every person to be saved. But Jesus says this because he wants disciples that will endure. He wants disciples that won't be flashes in the pan, you know, hot for a second and then cold and drift away, but he wants disciples that will be like trees that are planted by flowing streams of water that put down deep roots that every year bring out their fruit regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the suffering that will come with following this Lord. Jesus wants Disciples that are going to last. A good example to think of is the Apostle Paul. So he literally had a Damascus Road conversion. We'll, we'll use that word to refer to people who have like dramatic conversions. It's usually very, just a, a, an abrupt life change. It's usually a very spur of the moment. Probably a lot of emotion in that. So Paul literally had a Damascus Road conversion. I mean, that, that's what happened. But then he doesn't immediately go into ministry. He spends years studying and learning, considering what it means to be a follower of Christ. And if you consider the suffering that Paul had to go through, it makes sense. So that Paul could endure beatings three times, receiving the 40 lashes minus one. 
You, you do that once to me, and I'm, I'm probably done. Three times. Shipwrecks, cold, hunger, the emotional burden of, of, of churches that are, that are spread throughout the world who are various stages of health or dishealth. I mean, Paul experienced incredible suffering, and so he needed roots that went deep. And so even though he had this amazing conversion, even Paul still sat to consider, to count the cost, what it means to be a Christian. This love, no matter the cost. And I tell you what, when we love Christ, even in the face of suffering, when we love him above all things, even when we're suffering, that is what makes us distinctive as a people. And this brings us to our last point. This love is our distinctive. Look at verses 34 to 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Just explain this illustration. Salt typically has two uses. It's usually used as a preservative or used to flavor food. You probably don't use it as a preservative unless you like smoke food or something. Most of us probably use it to flavor food. We have a salt shaker on our table and we'll add it to food. We'll cook with it. If your salt doesn't taste salty though, it doesn't have much of a use. It doesn't add texture to our food. It doesn't add aesthetic appeal. Like if it doesn't taste like salt, if it doesn't taste different than the food that we're adding it to, it's, it's a waste of space. You throw it out. Well, Jesus is telling us that Christians are salt of the earth. Again, it's helpful to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so Jesus includes this teaching in Matthew 5, 13. He's a little bit more explicit. He says, you are the salt of the earth. My disciples, my followers, the citizens of the kingdom of God, you are the salt of the earth. And if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? We are salt, which means we're different from the world. And what gives us our saltiness, so to speak, is when we love Jesus more than anything even in the face of suffering. So it makes us distinctive. That's what makes people pause and say, you are different than I am because you love this Lord in a way that I don't fully understand and you're willing to do things for this Lord that I don't fully understand. And I have questions. What makes us distinctive is to be able to say with Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, indeed I count everything as loss, everything because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, as garbage. There may even be a swear word in there. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This is what makes us distinctive when we can say with Paul, there are good things in this world, but if I can only have Christ, if I can only grab a hold of Christ and have more of him, I consider everything as garbage in comparison to knowing the king, to being part of his kingdom. And so Paul gladly renounces everything, not because he's a masochist, but because he's, he knows the Lord and the Lord is worth it. Now I want to make a couple clarifications because we could read this passage and run in two very wrong directions. One tendency might be to read this passage. One tendency might be to minimize the goodness of creation and kind of move into this kind of monastic, you know, well, okay, I, I need to give away all my possessions. I can't enjoy anything good. I need to renounce everything for the Lord. And maybe you're not going to go so far as to 
sell everything you have and live in voluntary poverty, but maybe you feel guilt over just sitting down and reading a good book. You know, I should be reading my Bible. I should be sharing the gospel or feel guilt over just enjoying a good meal. But the Bible is very clear that God made a good world. When he created, he said it was good. And he made it good not to act as a museum, but so that we would enjoy its goodness. So this text is not telling us that we can't enjoy the world or that we should be afraid or guilty about ever enjoying the goodness of God's creation. But another tendency, another direction we could take this, is just to explain away this passage until it has no bite. And so there's no call to actually be salty or distinct. We just look like the world. At that point, we're, again, we're no longer salt as Christ is calling us to be. Now, there's this guy named Charles Taylor. He's helped me think this through, so this is not my own profundity. But Charles Taylor said, as Christians, there's a tension we live in, whereas one, we recognize that God has created a good world, and so we enjoy it without apology. We read good books. We listen to good music. We enjoy good food. We love our family without apology because God has made it, and he's made it good. At the same time, there is something better Life with God under his rule in his kingdom is better. And so though we affirm there is goodness in creation, we're still willing to give it up for what is better. That's the tension we live in. When, when, when Jesus says you have to renounce everything, he doesn't mean all of you are called to sell all your possessions and live in voluntary poverty because for one, if you did that, we would not have a church. There'd be no way to pay our bills and the world would be impoverished through losing all its churches. <laughs> Practically, clearly, some of us, maybe that is our calling. But what Christ is calling us to is to be willing to give up anything to follow him. I think what it means to be salt, what it means to be distinctive, what it means to, 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 to faithfully reflect our identity as citizens in the kingdom of heaven is to unabashedly, unashamedly love the world that God has made and yet be willing and glad to give it up for what is better, which is Jesus himself. This love is our distinctive. This is a hard passage to apply because it's so dependent on discerning what is Christ calling you to do. Maybe Christ is calling you to make some pretty heavy sacrifices, but there's, there's just so much that's up to discernment and some of you may hear this and be inspired and think, yes, I want to give up everything for the Lord. And some of you may hear this and just be tired and discouraged. And like, I can't give up anything else. So I want to say the place we begin, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, the place we always begin is not what must I give up, but we start with the good news. Because again, Jesus' ministry was not summarized by hardship. Jesus doesn't pull punches. Like he says, if, if you're gonna be my disciple, there's gonna be suffering, there's gonna be hard parts. But that's not the summary. That's not the, the essence of Jesus' ministry. The essence of Jesus' ministry is the good news. The good news, again, that God has come near to us, that his kingdom is breaking into our world, that we can see evidences of it all throughout the world, of Christ advancing the good news that he's welcomed us back. Guys, we are all prodigal sons and daughters who wasted our father's inheritance. And when we came back, God didn't act disappointed. But he picked us up in his arms. Oh, I don't deserve that. 
He's our father. He's not just a Lord who's a heavy taskmaster. He's our daddy in heaven. You can call the Lord of the universe your daddy. It's unbelievable. He's thrown a great banquet for us, feast. That's life abundant. He's called us to that. And he delights in me. He delights in you. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. And the more that that grips us and that that is good news, the more we're gonna be able to say to Jesus, you take whatever you want. I don't need it. I found something better. Oh, that we may love God back in a way that's fitting, that we may be faithful citizens of his kingdom, that the good news may flavor everything we do. Let's pray. Jesus, you have come and you've given us good news, a hope that is almost unthinkable. We thank you for saving us, for making us your own, for giving us a purpose to live for, for giving us provisions beyond what we need or could ask for, for being our Father who walks with us every step of our way. And so may we count the cost and consider it as nothing in comparison to knowing you, Jesus. Oh, you must do that work in our hearts by your spirit. And we ask it in faith. Amen.